humanitarian. Mary Rose, uh, Romar Murphy, and Gareth Price Jones, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Rose, you are the co-founder and board president of the Haiti Committee Foundation. You're also a management consultant. And Gareth, you are the executive secretary of Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response, SCHR. Now, the reason that uh, I've asked the two of you to come in here is a tweet storm that we had last week in humanitarian Twitter. I had It was a great pleasure to sit on the sideline and watch all these brilliant people express themselves in a few characters. And Gareth, you were the instigator. You were the guy who actually kicked this off. And, and maybe I'll just read out the tweet that started it all. You, you somehow feel, I don't know if it's an evening, you're sitting there maybe with a cup of tea. You say, I get annoyed when people refer to the ISC, international aid ecosystem, as broken. It is not. It reads more than 107 million people in 37 crises in 21, many of them with genuinely life-saving assistance using just $18.35 billion, that's $172 per person, 48 cents per person per day. And then you link to this report from, from, uh, from OCHA, sort of outlining achievements from last year. Now, why did you send that tweet? I think to start with, I'd be the first to acknowledge that I'm not necessarily the best person to be be defending aid, right? I'm a, I'm a white, middle-class British guy. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, he's biased. He works for big NGOs and the Red Cross. Um, he lives in Geneva, you know. So, so I, but the thing I think that I struggle with is that I think a lot of better placed colleagues uh, struggle to put their heads above the parapet, you know, and, and, and many of them have shared this with me. And when I wrote it, so I'd come out of a meeting with the uh, SCHR principal, so that's the chief executives of the nine member organisations of the SCHR. And they'd been talking a lot about how the challenges and struggle they're having motivating and supporting their roughly 140,000 staff around the world um, who were talking about being tired, demotivated and really struggling as as I think many of us are after kind of two years of pandemic. And particularly they were noting that there's a real resistance from their staff to any new change initiatives, for, particularly from HQ, but, um, but real resistance to further change. And, and as someone who's invested heavily in, in localization through the grand bargain, in participation, and many of the things that I think we all agree need to change around humanitarian age, uh, aid, um, I'm worried about that because I think it really blocks our ability to, to drive change moving forward. And I do feel that in a way we've, we've lost perspective slightly that yes, I fully agree as, you know, as I did in the, in the follow on to that tweet, that of course we, we have loads of challenges. We have loads of things we could and should be doing better. But I worry that, um, as I say, that we've lost um, perspective and, and also that we're opening space for, for delegitimizing aid, for blocking aid um, and for this kind of tear it down mentality. And um, one of the things that really struck me in the meeting, one of my colleagues was saying that um, you know, many staff had, had, had felt that they wanted to change direction, they wanted more purpose in their life, that the pandemic had made them revisit what they were doing with their lives and that this was actually making them leave the sector rather than join the sector. 
and so so that's that's really where it was coming from and 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 how do we balance better the need to drive change and need to drive real improvement in the sector but also recognize what it does what those 140,000 odd staff are doing in the field and in the partners and everything else that work with us um and just shift that balance tightly all right so you thought you would cheer us all up a bit with that uh, with that tweet after a couple of tough years and then mary rose you saw it And you, as far as I can gather, was not particularly uh, cheered up. And you threw out a few quite funny tweets under the hashtag reality check. What was your reaction when you saw the tweet? Well, let's see. I have to say that I need to make the difference between emotional response and strategic response. Because... The emotional response is not what I wrote. What I wrote was a strategic response. Um, And I think I'll try to explain where I'm coming from. Um, You have to understand that I've worked in the social change sector for most of my life. Uh, At this point, we're talking about over 30 years of experience. International development, I really got involved after the earthquake, 2010 earthquake, where I really felt like I had no other choice but getting involved. 2010 um, and the 2010 earthquake was um, just this incredible year for Haiti and Haitians all over the world. Um, It's not just the earthquake, the collective trauma, Then there was um, a hurricane, crops were lost, um, hunger as a result. On top of it, you ended up having um, UN troops bringing cholera into Haiti and denying it. Um, On the personal level, end of the year, my mother got kidnapped. So there was this sense of you know, forget about just fatigue and trauma. It was just a wet year for us, okay? But out of all of this, because we Haitians have like this spirit, uh, which is incredible, and we I won't call it resilience. I will call it creativity. I will call it joie de vivre. I will call it a lot of different things. But... Out of all of this, a lot of us started feeling like this was happening for a reason, and maybe it was to build back better, okay? And maybe it was an opportunity. And there were there was this sense, and there was a lot, there were a lot of ideas that were coming in Haiti that was coming up. What if we did this? What if we did that? And it was amazing. And I will tell you what failed me was that these ideas and this energy was never, they were never leveraged, okay? And what we saw in 2010 was pure colonization and extraction and disaster capitalism. And no one was held responsible and there were no reparations. And frankly, I'm at a stage where I feel like, 
the health sector and the world owes us preparation for the 2010 earthquake. So this is a long explanation, but bear with me. So I know recently there have been conversations about whether or not the health sector has learned from 2010 in Haiti. Everybody talks about it as a learning, a turning point, except that no one is really touching it. There have been maybe some progress, but frankly, I haven't seen much learning. Just to give you one example, from August 2021 to the end of it, USAID gave $50 million in contract to Haiti. Okay? Do you know how many were given to local and national organizations, Haitian organizations? Take a guess. A couple of hundred thousand? Z Whoa. All right. So here's the deal in terms of where I'm coming from. And this is why I talk about my emotional response being different from my strategic response. Okay. Some people will never hear me the same way that some people will never fully see me as an equal. Okay. Some people will hear, uh, what's going on, they won't feel the sense of urgency. Some people will understand. Um, no one understands the need for change the way the affected population experiences. Okay? And do we need change? Not just yesterday, but 30 years ago plus. So, my reaction to this tweet, and I have to be honest, Garrett, uh, was not just being annoyed, but just this <laughs> anger <laughs> that I have, and that is that I've learned to channel in a productive way. So. My strategic response though, because I understand that you're an ally, and I understand that some people are, I understand more or less where you're coming from, was to try to articulate things in a way where the people who are not the dinosaurs that will never understand where people like me come from, but people will understand and have an illustration about what we from the global south are we are seeing the aid sector. I have a question when I hear you talking because I, I empathize quite quite heavily with with the perspective and one of the things that deeply frustrates me is this repetitive um, nature of the mistakes we make, the, the seemingly inability to 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 shift, even though it is widely recognized that we do need to change. Uh, quite a, a few things about our sector. At the same time, I want to ask you, is there a part of you that agrees with Gareth? That actually, look, there's this much money going out. You have a, a hundred and I can't remember how many staff working in the organizations Gareth represent. I mean, is nothing good coming out of that? Is it a net negative for society? Or, or do you think that something good is coming out of that? And what does that mean? Here's the thing that I want to frame. There are a lot of things, the health sector is focused, a lot of it is focused on the short term and it's focused on, on reaction. 
It's not focused on prevention. It's not focused on the long term. Okay? So, in terms of immediate action, okay, which I guess we're very good at, obviously, they are good. <laughs> Some people are getting fed. People are getting help. Uh, many people who have died otherwise, you know, um, are being kept alive and all of this. So, should people take pride in that? Absolutely. What you have to understand is that I know a number of people and I've met a number of people that are very good people. And I'm not tra trying to say, oh my God, this is horrible. There is nothing good. And, you know, nothing good is coming out of it. Right? But now, let's step back a little bit. And let's separate intentions from actions. Let's also see nuances in terms of different people, different levels from policy to implementation, okay? And then try to sort of like put the larger context. And to see sort of like the long-term impact or even the short-term impact. When, for me, and, you know, I'm sorry because if I've been part of different sort of like presentations and whatever, and for some people it would sound repetitive, but I have to keep saying it. Aid is supposed to be about ending the need for aid and ending aid. Okay? And I repeat it. Aid is supposed to be about ending the need for aid and ending aid. The way it's structured right now, it's not doing it. Okay? And what's going on is that it's creating a system of dependency. It's also sort of like very much paternalistic because all we can keep hearing and the way things are set up is that Global South local all national organizations, global south countries don't have the capacity. We have to keep teaching them at the tune of millions. Let's keep building their capacity. But these millions are not going straight to the countries, the organizations, or everything else. They are going into the pockets of um, international NGOs. Uh, very little is actually getting into the community. And it's continuing to perpetuate a cycle of dependency. My thing is, if the aid sector were serious about sort of like ending itself, it would plan an exit strategy. And I don't care if we're talking about 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years, but where is the exit strategy? And if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And you can keep talking, but if you're not doing it systematically, okay, it's just not happening. So what are you doing inside? Because I hear a lot of talk of, you know, Lars Peter and Garrett about dignity, about empowerment, 
about whatever it is. But you know, I'm gonna tell you something. I've built and I've helped run a local organization with all of the pain that it includes, okay? I have worked as a consultant for uh, international organizations, work in what people love to say, talk about the field. And so I've experienced and I've seen what's going on at community levels, whether it was in Haiti or Africa. I'm part of different networks. I've been part of the localization, you know, movement. And what I can tell you is that, Garrett, I hear you when you talk about people being sensitive, being discouraged, being tired, okay? But there is a part of me that says, oh, I hear. And yeah, we have to acknowledge some of the positive. At the same time, you know, if we keep patting people on the back and say, this is good, feel good, let's keep going, it's never going to happen. Because the reality of it is that uh, we need structural change, not incremental change. Okay? And does any of it make any of us comfortable? You have many of us, and you want to talk about uncomfortable? Uncomfortable is when you have, you're in a womb uh, somewhere in Geneva, in London, in Brussels, or wherever in Europe or in Washington. And you have different people that are talking very condescendingly and very negatively and very openly that way about local organizations, global South countries, and the affected population. Okay? No respect whatsoever. But that's one layer. Then you go on the field and you see all your, your communities or global South communities are being treated. And it has nothing to do with dignity, nothing. On the contrary, I've had to play the roles of the advocate and I've had to take the backlash and the attacks because I've taken that role because I didn't care at the end if I lost money. So that's, that's why I lost Peter, that's why I'm at. As I, I think you also, you mentioned Mary Rose, I don't think Gareth and I necessarily uh, disagree with a lot of what you said. I, th I think we can we can see those things and 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 have quite a deep frustration. At least I shouldn't speak for you, Gareth, but I, I have a very deep frustration around uh, some of these things. And so for me, the question is, Gareth, when you sit there with your with your senior executives from the nine biggest organizations we have in the business, and they talk about being in, unable to motivate and support their staff. Okay, we have a pandemic, and that's tough on all of us, I believe. But to my knowledge, most people enter into this business not primarily to make money, but because they believe in a more just world and they are trying to change the world. That's the people I meet anyways. Isn't it possible that the lack of motivation that the staff feels in this organization is exactly because of what Marie Rose is describing, a lack of change of the fundamentally 
a lack of change of the power in the sector and and this repetitive nature of thinking of it as 48 cents per person per day yeah so, so i think that's definitely part of it and and certainly i i do share that frustration yeah i worked in haiti myself after the earthquake um but i i think that where where we differ, I think, is possibly in our analysis of of why that happens, right? So so I think um you know, I fully fully agree with with what you're saying, um, Mary Rose. And I think for me there's a couple of things here. One is around the, the scale of aid. So so one of the things that I find quite frustrating is when people talk about kind of big aid and and you know, we look at this year's appeal, it's like forty two billion dollars. Um, of which maybe we get 20 billion, right? It was it was 18 last year, and on a personal level, that's a huge amount of money, right? But it's it's a drop in the ocean of a of a 94 trillion dollar world economy. And just to put it in context, uh, last July it was reported in the Economist that airlines alone had received 225 billion dollars in COVID bailout money in 18 months. Um, and and even I think it's it's a drop in the ocean of even specific uh, crises. So so um, one of the things coming coming back to Haiti, uh, you know, I worked in Haiti there, and but I don't think there was ever anywhere near the level of resourcing that would have been needed, even with all those big appeals. It was five billion dollars, I think, over three years. So that's about ten percent of the Haitian economy, uh, you know, about ten percent of the GDP, and. Um, you know, compared to the earthquake losses were 120% of total GDP. So, so what you're comparing with there is um, you know, the Mexico earthquake in 1985, that, that, was, that was only 2.7% of the economy. So you're expecting aid to drive this huge transformational change that it's just not resourced to do at all. And, and so I think it's that uh, you know, managing realistic expectations of, of what you can do with that level of support. So I completely share the frustration. But my sense is that you're expecting a sticking plaster. I mean, all of us agree, humanitarian aid kind of sticking plaster. I think most of us think it should aspire to something greater, which is exactly what you were talking about, Mary Rose. Um, but I think it's just not resourced to do that. So, so we're setting ourselves up to fail. Maybe if I can just jump in there, Gareth, on a couple of things. We call it big aid because of the dominant position it holds in the sector. It's the concentration of power. It's a tendency towards a monopoly. That's why it's big aid. And an organization that reaches 15,000, 20,000 employees walks and talks like an organization that has 15,000, 20,000 employees. And that's fundamentally different from an organization that, that has 15 or 20. At least when I speak of big aid, it's not because I think we have enough money and it's being wasted. No, obviously not. Needs far exceed resources, and it's ridiculous that we are incapable of, of being having more solidarity in the world and, and giving more money. But that doesn't excuse a few big players dominating the field, monopolizing the narrative, and, and basically stifling innovation. But I'm not sure they do. I mean, just on your on your last podcast, for example, and I was listening to that over the weekend, and there's a lot of talk there about entrepreneurs, about all the change that is happening. Yet my sense is that the dominant narrative, and this is what, what many colleagues report back to me, is that the narrative is that, that we fail, 
you know, I mean, on, on your podcast, you know, that, that we suck. And I think that's not how we drive change. Telling people that they're failing consistently and, and also failing to differentiate between, because some are failing, I fully agree. Um, but I think we're also seeing some really exciting change about how, how we engage with affected people, how much we empower our partners. And it's too slow, I fully agree. But to not acknowledge that shift, I find frustrating. I just want to be clear that my expectation is that aid is not going to solve the issues. So, Garrett, when you're talking about the money and then giving some figures, um, I will say to you that the Center for uh, Global Development, uh, when they analyze sort of like some of the aid that have come and try to track the outcome and figure out the impact, they couldn't see anything. And for a sector uh, that prides itself on accountability, um, you know, that is, that is quite saying something. I mean, so no, I don't expect sort of like international aid to come and I didn't expect them to save us. But I also, you know, I think we, and I shouldn't say I, we had an issue with the fact that um, Asian activists were not necessarily welcome at the meetings, that there was no translation that was provided. Um, there was if you look at, and I started looking at the way the money was allocated, and that's one of the things that enraged me and had me drive myself into the ground for years, is that the money was allocated to international organizations. And, you know, amazing salaries were being paid to people that had milk behind their ears. And it was well known that, you know, in a crisis of this type, you had aid organizations sending very young, inexperienced people. I mean, so every time that I hear, forget about just the earthquake, every time that I hear a large amount of money just being allocated, be given by donor country to the country, at this point, I'm not thinking good news because I can tell you from a local organization, a national organization that has been able to drive significant change and being able to uplift people, okay? What we've been able to do with very little resources, when I hear about these amounts of money that are being given for certain things, and then you figure out exactly or very little has gone to the community and all, you know, this impact is not long-term and we're not seeing what's being left, what's being done, I have to tell you, I can't help thinking that even if these large international organizations work with local organizations in true partnerships, the results would be better in terms of cost efficiency, in terms of things that are really aligned, as far as what the communities really want. And I have to tell you, you want to talk about annoyed? One of the things that drives me nuts, and beyond annoyed at this point, is the fact that whenever I hear different 
sort of like leaders, such as yourself or other people, talk about the need for engagement, okay, as far as humanitarian or development or whatever, they talk about participation. Participation. I'll tell you where I come from, and you can call me a nationalist, okay? I come from a point is that I don't want to hear about participation. I want to hear leadership. I want to hear leadership. It is a basic human right, as far as I'm concerned, that organizations and countries should be in the leadership of their development and humanitarian efforts. And all of these things should be integrated and come from a community-centered approach. So how about that, uh, Gareth? We talk about the participation revolution, and basically what uh, Marie Rose is saying is, look, that's nowhere close enough. You have to have this let by the people affect the crisis. What's the response there? Well, I completely agree. Um, and, and I think in many contexts it is, um, you know, particularly I think one of the things we could do a lot more about is in terms of capturing the impact of, of local government and, and, and local actors much better. I mean, I think this is one of the problems in which we frame the humanitarian system, which we talk about what the international system's bringing in. But actually the vast majority of almost every single humanitarian response in the world is provided by local people. Um, you know, when I was in Bangladesh, we did a back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation, and the vast majority of just financial allocations came from the government of Bangladesh. Um, you know, all the organisation was done by local government. And and I think that's where... So, so I, I, I differ from... Uh, you know, uh, Mary Rose in that I think that I think there's an ongoing role for international solidarity. Um, so, so I don't see us ever losing the, the need or desire for kind of international actors. But what I do see is that being a much more kind of effective partnership where, you know, you've got your local capacity is steering things. Um, and then they're reaching out and saying, this is where we need kind of complementary resources. This is where we need to plug those resources in. And if you look at a lot of recent disaster management acts, they're around kind of creating an adapter that international assistance can plug into when the, the needs, needs overwhelm local capacity. Certainly not the case everywhere in the world, but but increasingly I think that's the case, and and I think we have made progress in there, and and I think that's what's missing from a lot of the narrative, is the progress that 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 is being made in so much of the world. I still remember the last time we had the world, uh, what is it, the the Alnab report, State of the World Humanitarian System report, is that correct? Yes, yeah, State of the Humanitarian System must have been three, four years ago. And, and the last slide they put up was the humanitarian sector is changing, but the world is changing faster. And so the gap between what we should be and what we are is getting bigger. And, and that's why I get concerned with us being happy with the, the changes we see, because they are excruciatingly slow. Well, so, 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 so that's where I differ slightly, because I think... Um yeah, I fully agree that, that that change needs to be faster. What I struggle to see is is um, is alternative ways to do that at scale. So so, and I think you know, we we talk a lot. One one way of thinking about it is is the Amazon versus the um, uh, 
you know, Amazon, you have one massive thing that does it, and then you then you have the alternative, which you have a long tail of small organizations and how you aggregate that. And, and, and this long tail can potentially have a lot more impact than a few large organizations. I would suggest you probably need both. And there are kind of economies of scale in, in, in a lot of this, this kind of work. We do know a lot of the kind of top lines, you know, we know because we've asked affected people. And I would argue that a lot of those big organizations are quite good at this. They do. I just remember as a country director, you know, a large part of my job was about kind of creating space for my team to do what they said was needed. And I fully agree. That was often a big battle with HQ, right? To be allowed to do what affected people were, were telling you they, they needed rather than what your HQ wanted you to see, uh, wanted you to be prioritizing in accordance with their 10-year strategy. But I think there is the flexibility built in there. And I think we, we disempower a lot of people by, by assuming that it isn't. I think by the, by the end of it, we may end up having to agree to disagree. Because one of the things that I see is like, for example, you want to talk about change and the pace of change. Okay. Let's not talk about the big bargain and the fact that it did not necessarily land. Okay, that's one. And then COVID happened, and there was the sense that given some of the restrictions, there were going to be there was there were there was going to be that um, change and shift of power towards the local and national organizations of the local south. And what do we have as a report that actually there's been a regression? So forget about progress, there's been a regression. Then the other piece is that if you want to talk about numbers, we, I think all agree, cash is good, it's better for the local economy and everything else. But then you start like looking and digging into the numbers. And you see that, okay, cash may have grown um, exponentially, but then so has the control of it has mostly been, again, aggregated within the hands of sort of like the UN and larger INGOs. And now, you know, here's the thing. When you look at the change and then you say, okay, there may be some organization that may be willing to act differently, but then it's what there's, there are a couple of labels, what they say and then what happens really and all things are implemented, all right? And then it really depends on whoever is managing that implementation. Um, there isn't a system of mutual accountability, okay? There isn't a systematic way of making it sort of like an obligation, um, which means that it's one step forward, several steps back, and we're not going, you know, where we need to go. So... On one hand, I understand what you're talking about, morale. On the other hand, 
there's a part of me that feels like, you see, if you talk to several people like from the global south that were in different organizations and have had to keep pushing it because most of the time it's very difficult to access funding. Uh, we have barriers and barriers and barriers and we have to bleed to make things happen. Okay? And when you tell me that people are discouraged because you're not getting just pats in the back and saying, oh, your job is good. And I compare it to what very often you have to deal with in terms of people acting towards you in an insulting way, people having you jump hoops, people sometimes completely ignoring you or acting as if you are completely ungrateful for criticizing you, okay? Of criticizing the system. Everything that we have to go through, and a lot of it, frankly, you know, it's systemic um, bias, uh, racism, and everything else, okay? And then what your people have to do, because I went myself into the ground and other people have to in order to make things happen financially, mentally, physically, okay? I just, there's a part of me that want to say, Garrett, I'll be honest, it's like, come on, wake up, smell the coffee. If you're really in there to make things happen, okay, let us all get together. And if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. That's where I'm at. So, so just on that, I mean, I, I, I think I, you know, I, I, I fully understand that frustration. I think, think the people who are in the kitchen aren't people like me in Geneva, right? There, there are kind of 95 to 99% local colleagues working in the field who, who are constantly being told the challenge is that they're not consulting enough, they're not uh, participatory enough. And, you know, I co-convened the participation work stream in the Grand Bargain, and, and I know that's been frustrating for many people, but the key thing that we want to do is get affected people's views into those, those budget-setting processes, into those kind of project design processes, because that's where the real decisions are getting made. Um, and I think that's critical. And, and, and those... Um, you know, those 140,000 staff, they're overwhelmingly from the global south. These are, these are people kind of from working in their countries. The vast majority of humanitarians are working in their home countries, um, even for these big international agencies. And, and a lot of those decisions are made at that country level. You know, there, there's increasing flexibility. And I think where we have still have some big battles is around transferring empowering those people to use that flexibility that does exist already. You know, when we talk to the donors about participation, they say, well, we, we already insist that all our partners incorporate the views of affected people. It's, it's there in the donor contract. Now, now, who on the ground reads those donor contracts? Who feels empowered enough to say to their donor, actually, you know, we can change these activities to, 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 to meet what people tell us they need? So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do fully agree, agree with that. And, and, and I don't think we disagree on this. And, and I don't think anyone's suggesting we should get a nice, polite pat on the back. Um, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, some of these conversations do need to happen in public. Um, we know that that puts pressure on us to change. Uh, one of the biggest examples for me is around uh, sexual exploitation and, and, and abuse, 
where I don't think we'd have seen anywhere like the, the, the pace of change that we've had in the last two, three years if it hadn't been a, a big public scandal. You know, so, so, so I think that, I certainly wouldn't suggest, you know, I, I know one of the responses was, was saying that we, um, you know, we shouldn't hide behind our good works. And I completely agree with that. But I think we should at least acknowledge that there is some positive impact there. Um, and that, you know, if, if you're one of the, the hundreds of thousands of people who deliver that stuff on the ground and, and in local organisations, I remember my partners in many of the countries I've worked in, their staff worked for free. I mean, never mind low local salaries. They were volunteering between contracts because they believed in their organisations. They believed in what they were doing. And so I do find it difficult that we've got to get a better balance, I think. It, it's certainly not... Um, that we shouldn't be talking about this, but but that we need to balance that recognizing the impact we do have um, with the challenges that we still face. I think we mapped out the territory. There's clearly a, a disagreement. Gareth, what I hear you saying is actually, when you look at it, uh, the scale is quite big. Uh, we are not close to meeting the needs, obviously, but it's a significant amount of money going in. We have these quite effective huge organizations who can channel this money out there. That does a lot of good. Don't forget that. Don't just be pessimist all the time. Actually look at, at what we are able to achieve against all odds. And on the other hand, Marie Rose, what I hear you saying is it's a desperate situation. We don't see any shift of power. What you do whenever something changes, it's a nice to, not a need to. And the next time around, we're back to square one. There is no struggle. This is basically a colonial system and it's disaster capitalism. And where's the change? Right. So on one side, we have scaling, we have resources going out. On the other hand, we have a, a quite strong feeling of disempowerment and, and lack of real partnership. Is that somehow a fair recap of, of where we stand? I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I would call it disempowerment, because all I can tell you is that in terms of my network and organization, we're hustling. We're hustling. We're finding the resources. We're community-centered. We're working with philanthropy, humanitarian, with development, whatever it is that needs to go. Uh, there's a lot of work that's happening sort of like in Haiti in terms of civil society. Um, as I said to a young woman the other day um, in Afghanistan, um, actually not Afghanistan, Pakistan, I basically said to her as she wanted to work on something, and I said to her, don't wait to be empowered. We're not interested in waiting to be empowered. That's the bottom line. And as far as I'm concerned, it's like, um, are we saying, am I saying that there is nothing good? No. But on the other hand, I just want to challenge the general thinking that I see out there. Because I am tired, even though they are changing to capacity sharing, to capacity reinforcement, how long are we going to be set up for failure as far as local and national organizations? Because you can teach us how to fish a thousand and one time and raise and take in a lot of money to do that. But if we don't have access to the water, 
if the resources are not shifted, if we continue to have to face the sense of distrust that is not explained to us, that even like uh, uh, basically studies are saying uh, is senseless, okay? Where are we gonna go? It's like, come on! Thank you for that, Marie Rose. Um, I'd like to pick up on a slightly different part of the conversation. And uh, the headline I gave myself before we started is don't wash, wash your laundry in public versus sunlight is the best disinfectant. And it's about how should we talk about this? There are obvious problems. None of us on this call are, are stupid. We know there are massive problems. We're not, but, but I hear you saying, Garrett, it is so tiring to hear all this endless criticism. And we, we need to also be positive. And I hear you, Marie Rose, say, if we don't make noise, nothing will change. And I, I have a, a personal experience of, of having tried to grow ACAPS for the, the past 11 years and often being told to basically shut up, right? I mean, and so where are we with that? Do we have to be more careful about how we speak about these things? Do we, are we not start, uh, stark enough in our criticism? I think that actually a lot of people are afraid of speaking out. And I, I really liked you for, for coming out and, and, and tweeting like this. And I, I loved your retweet, Marie Rose. And, and I, I'm so happy that you're both here because I hear a lot of people who say nothing in spite of us knowing the problem. So how do we deal with this issue of public perception versus criticism? Maybe if I can come in on that, that one. I mean, I think... Um there's definitely some fear, right? And I've been told myself, you know, by by NGO directors that that speaking out and criticising is career limiting was the phrase, I think. Um, so so I think there's very very kind of solid grounds for fear. And, and one of the challenges that that we're working on in the Grand Bargain is how do we create mechanisms by which local partners can be honest about where their big aid partners aren't great without fearing that they'll have their funding their funding cut. Um, so I think that that's a real challenge. Um, but I think also it's really different in different organizations as well. So so I think um, there is genuine interest in in leaders from from right across the spectrum in, in hearing alternative ways of working solutions. Um, I think my challenge is that it quite often comes across as, as a repeat critique. So I'm not saying don't criticise at all. I mean, absolutely, we, we, we deserve criticism. But I think it's, it's also about how do you balance that with kind of recognition of the impact that we do have, which, which I think is very real and, and significant, as I said. And, and my sense is that... Um, you know, when you when you come out and say that you're optimistic or that you're inspired or anything, it's often just dismissed as marketing or fundraising, and I think um, I think that's not entirely true. And and I think you know when we're all aware that that particularly um, you know, when you look at beneficiary numbers or whatever, that, that some of them are pretty iffy, but none of them doesn't have a foundation. And and on some of our programming like cash and and and, and that's pretty robust. You know, like a cash program, you can tell exactly who received cash and and you can, you know, there's very robust evaluations. And I'd like to see a bit more acknowledgement of that because it's very easy to say, oh, that's just you fundraising. That's just you kind of blowing your trumpet. But it's also about kind of recognizing, you know, the work of those those staff on the ground, that the, the engagement that they do have. Um, 
and and the trouble is, it, so it's it's about getting a balance. It's not about. I certainly wouldn't say for a second that that we should we can't take criticism, but it's also about recognizing because the trouble is then I think if you just get the criticism, and then particularly outside the sector where you know, we've. We've probably all seen this in my family are really interested in what, in what I do for about 15 minutes and then they want to talk about the football. Um, you know, when we have these conversations within the sector, they're often heard outside the sector as it's rubbish. Why should we give money to those organizations? They're all appalling, they're all colonialists, they're all um, they're all just holding people back. Um, so it's about how do we have that useful conversation that drives change without kind of just undermining the case. For you know, amongst your taxpayers and even amongst affected people who, who, to be fair, often have a limited, they just want to fix their problems. They want to go on with their lives. So it's um, it's how you get that appro- more appropriate balance. So Marie Rose, should you be more balanced in your rhetoric? You've been very critical on this podcast. Do you think that undermines effort? Does it set us back as well? Is Garrett right? Should we tone it down a little bit? I think that people need to realize that whatever criticism, unless they've done something very wrong, is not to be taken personally. And it's like, um, if you think about it, it's like racism. I'll talk about white people, I'll talk about white supremacy, while I've been married for decades to a good man who happens to be white, and so my best friends are white. Uh, should I really shut up because I'm afraid to hurt their feelings while all of the numbers are showing that the systems are still continuing to perpetuate themselves and, you know, things are not changing and there's a lot of talk and not enough action? No. No. And I wouldn't want you to. (laughs) Garrett. And I hear what you're saying because there, I I, I hear what you're saying because there is a part of me that feels like I would like to show up and not have someone question my capacity after 30 plus years of experience and doing the impossible with very little resources and, you know, being sometimes actively discouraged by different people in the system only to keep persisting, okay? And um, still having, just because of the color of my skin, just because I'm from Haiti, who people love to talk about as the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, just because I have an accent, to have people keep spelling things out, for me to have to face distrust, for me to, in order to apply for a small grant, have to go through so much and so much in terms of, you know, vetting and everything else, while it's there. Like the walk is there. It's getting a little easier, but when I see all of the money that's being thrown at white organizations or white people who have no goddamn qualifications, I'm just like, for goodness freaking sake. So 
I, I hear what you're saying. And my thing is, there is a point where you can go and you still have funding. You still have transportation. You don't have to choose between getting paid and doing your work or something like that, or to go in a sleepless night to do a report because where funders are not giving you the money to have the capacity or the people to do it. All right? And I want you to think about that reality and think about how fortunate and your colleagues should realize how fortunate they are. And at this point, if it's really about equity, to start thinking systematically, what are some of the changes that need to be made in order to make sure that we have true partnership? not just politically correct, oh, these are our partners, but frankly, they have to prove us, uh, uh, themselves to us at no jam. And I've done that with a partner recently. They, we went through different groups. It was an international organization. And at one point I said, oh, could I have letters from your partners saying that you're very good at partnering? Because money is good, but we're putting together some on the table. But we'd like to know it's also about the quality of the partnership. And they were shocked because these are not things that white people are expecting. That's something we're really working on at the moment. In the, um, I also sit on the Intermediaries Caucus. And one of the things we're really looking for, looking for there is an effective way that that gets that, um, you know, we're very aware we've got these terms upstream and downstream, which we get a problematic. We're trying to find a non-jargony alternative to that. But just shifting the accountability the other way, because in some ways I think it is getting worse in terms of the risk that's being placed on on, on the local partners, the, 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 the risk is being transferred from those most able to bear it to those least able to bear it. And, and, and that's clearly not an effective way of working, you know, if, I'm just thinking, so we have had this conversation before, not the three of us, but I surely have had this conversation with other people. There are nuances to what we have said today, but I'm sure for you as well, this is well-known territory. And uh, Gareth, you, you have somehow uh, taken the role of being the happy clapper of the bunch, right? And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of. Defending Brigade and, and saying that actually things are not that bad. And and um, I would like to then, in order to somehow move us forward and trying to find uh, a way of, of a common understanding of, of what change means in the sector and how we move it forward. If the three of us met a year from now to discuss the same thing, let's say Gareth has itchy Twitter fingers in a year and he sends out something similar, same thing happens, we have this conversation... What are the things you would be looking for to, to show you that there has been real change? That it's not just window dressing, but that there's real change. What is that thing you're looking for? What will tell you, Marie Rose, that this is a real change, that now we're actually seeing a shift? What will tell you, Gareth, that it's not just because you have your rosy eye glasses on, but there's actually a real change here? And I'll give you mine as well. Who wants to go first? I think for me, real change would mean actions, not talk. And specifically, when we talk about community-led development, which a lot of people love to talk about, that um, 
these community-led programs would actually be developed not in Boston, not in Washington, not in Brussels, not in uh, Geneva, but in India, in Haiti, um, in Pakistan, in, in different countries in Africa. Um, it would mean that when I look at the funding, in terms of direct funding, it is not like crumbs being thrown at us, okay, for which we have to do endless, um, you know, hours of reporting and we have to go through endless, you know, like vetting uh, processes and evaluation, but that it would actually be significant because I understand and I don't want to discount some of the things that different advocacy groups and different groups have been trying to do. When they clap and say that, oh, there are two or three groups that were funded by the START Network in terms of local Haitian organizations, I clap with them. But when I look at the situation of my country, which has been in crisis for decades, and the fact that politically speaking, or in terms of aid or any other thing, it's being um, manipulated and um, Haitians cannot take the leadership at a system-wide system level of the country. This change, it's like a drop in a bucket. And people have to understand. And I think for many of us, this is what we're looking at. Can we not look at the drop in the bucket or can we actually sort of like literally have a system that's a lot more equitable? And that's where I'm at. So if I see some of that and, and I go on the ground and as opposed to having um, community meetings not happening, because whether it's for cash programs or any other stuff, because people say, oh, we're gonna have a community meetings and it's not really happening because they don't really care and they don't wanna get the feedback, okay? That there would actually be a process. So these are the things that I would be looking at at different levels from micro to macro in terms of real change, things that I'm not seeing right now. Yeah, so for me, I, th I think what will really show show progress is is a bit of a shift away from the kind of humanitarian naval gazing. Um, and I think if we get there, that'll be because we have a shared confidence that, that overall we're, we're making at least some progress. Probably won't be as fast as some of us would like. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm certain it won't be as fast as I like. But, but that we have a mechanism to both kind of say what's needed and, and critique as necessary, um, but also listen to that and be confident that it's, it's going to drive change. And then if we could stop that focus on, on so much of our humanitarian system, we'd look at that much larger societal system that I think, you know, we talk a lot about underlying causes. They're almost all non-humanitarian. Um, 
And and so if we were able to kind of get away from focusing so much on what we're doing wrong and focusing much more on, on the wider political diplomatic landscapes that, that is putting people in their most tremendous suffering that we're even needed, um, then that for me is, is, is when we're looking much more outwards uh, to the private sector, to governments, to local governments. And, and, and that's where I feel I'd really feel that, that, that things, things have moved on. Thanks. Uh, for me, it, I think, is around diversity. Not in the sense that we often talk about it, but in the terms of institutional diversity. We, we speak a lot about ecosystems um, and, and the humanitarian ecosystem and whatever. And, and I'm going contrary to what you said, Gareth, because you say, oh, let's not uh, obsess about the system and whatever. But for me, I think the, the thing that's really lacking is diversity of institutions. If you look at it, the way the main organizations, the big aid from the UN, from uh, the INGO side of things and, and the Red Cross, the way they receive and distribute money, it's the same thing. It's the same business model. And we simply need to have a more diverse sector in terms of having checks and balances, organizations that perform different functions and don't just work according to the sort of current uh, cradle-to-grave grant model that we have. I think that's a massive part of the problem. So much more differentiation among the organizations I think will create that real accountability that we are we are lacking today. And then if we have that, I think we would actually see a couple of organizations probably go out of business because they're doing a bad job. And I think that would be good. But maybe just to challenge you a bit on that last piece, because even within the SCHR, which compared to other NGO consortia, we're, we're a relatively homogenous group of, of big organizations. But I see huge differences in how, how the SCHR members work. Um, you know, from the, from the federation, which is focused entirely on how they support national societies, to, you know, raging between our big... Uh, well, increasingly, that, that is their clear strategy. I think it's a journey, right? But... Um, but I do see, you know, very different approaches between, you know, even this, the big organisations. And I think some of them are far better at this than, than others are. I mean, if you compare your know, MSF's model to Oxfam's model to CARE's model, they're, they're all quite different. So I think we shouldn't dismiss the level of diverse. And then you look at, you know, talking to Manu Gupta with, with, with Nia recently, and he was explaining to me how his organisation funds over 900 local organisations. It's a local organisation itself in India. So, and then you look at the BRACs and the others. So I think we do have significant, um, significant diversity. And I, th I think one of our challenges is, is that there's so much of it out there that often we're not aware of it. And, and, and I think it kind of behooves all of us to, to try and understand that a bit better. It's a good thing we live in the same city, the echo <laughs> chamber of Geneva, because that means we can meet up over a beer and finish that one, because I do not agree. <laughs> I want to thank both of you. Marie Rose and Gareth, thank you so much for coming on, on True Humanitarian. I deeply respect your willingness to enter into this debate. I think we need to talk more, not less about this. I, need, I think we need to challenge each other. And Marie Rose, I really agree with what you said. It's not personal. That's not what we're talking about. We're trying to explore different positions in, in order to do a better job. So, so thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. The rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead 
cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and knowing is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor for the truth. You've been warned. Humanitarian.